Take our Bibles, if you would, and we'll open them to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3. In our study last week from the book of Joshua, one of the things we learned is that the Old Testament as well as the New has some wonderful pictures of salvation. Before the foundation of the world, God decided that he was going to save us. He decided on our salvation. And then throughout history, he works out all of his plans and purposes exactly the way that he wants to work them out. And he makes sure that those that he has chosen to salvation will come to him in faith. Last week, we were talking about Rahab. And Rahab was just a a really obscure person when you think about all the thousands of Canaanite people. And yet she is someone that God chose to save. Now, as far as we would look at it, uh, morally, Rahab would be way down on our scale. Uh, Socially, uh, we wouldn't have much to do with her because she was a prostitute. She was from the wrong side of the tracks. Polite company wouldn't have associated with Rahab. And yet we do find that she is one that God decided to save. And so we can truly say about her that God is no respecter of persons. He saves the worst of the worst. And if you're like me, you know that's why God saved you. So we thank the Lord for that. But surely of all the people that we would think of who lived in Jericho, Rahab would not be the person that we would choose. But now we see in our story here that Rahab is taken care of. And make no mistake about this, that Jericho will not be taken until Rahab is made safe. And God made sure of that. So that's taken care of. And now Israel is ready to cross the Jordan and go in to conquer the promised land. Well, these next three chapters are preparations as the people get ready to go into Canaan. And whenever God calls us to to do something, he asks us to step out in faith. And Israel was headed to the promised land, which is a picture of our Christian lives as we go through the Christian life. And certainly God tells us that we need to step out in faith. And when we do, he makes sure that we will succeed because he's the one who's on our side and who's leading us. So we're going to talk about tonight on the subject, stepping out in faith. And if you'd stand with me, please, we're going to read from God's Word. And we're looking at the entire chapter of Joshua chapter 3. We're going to cover the whole chapter tonight, only we're just going to read the first eight verses as we start off here. So Joshua chapter 3, beginning with verse number 1. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and they removed from Shittim and came to Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. And it came to pass after three days that the officers went through the host, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priest and the Levites bearing it, then ye shall remove from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that ye may know the way by which ye must go, for ye have not passed this way heretofore. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spake unto the priests, saying, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass before the pass over before the people. And they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. And thou shalt command the priests that bear the ark of the covenant, saying, When ye are come to the brink of the water of Jordan, ye shall stand still in Jordan." 
Our Heavenly Father, as we come tonight, we just ask you, Lord, to bless the message as we preach tonight. Lord, help us to understand what it means to step out in faith. And Lord, to know that you're always there for us. Bless as we preach your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And Joshua rose up early in the morning and came to Jordan. The Bible says he lodged there before they passed over. And we noticed in a previous lesson that when Joshua began to prepare the people, that what he didn't do was he didn't say, let's go out here to the Jordan River and let's build a bridge across the Jordan. And neither did God say or Joshua say, here's what you need to do. You need to make some rafts or get some boats and we're going to cross the Jordan River. No, they didn't do anything like that because this was going to be a faith crossing. And Joshua knew that he could get the people to the other side without any natural means. And when this was over, it was going to be absolutely certain that if they cross over, God is the one who brought them there. God's the one who's going to stop the waters of the Jordan. So we have a faith crossing that's about to take place. Now, if they're going to cross Jordan, of course, that means that God has to be with them. And so Joshua gives the people assurance, God will be there. So there's no need for you to worry about stepping out in faith. Well, as we begin this study tonight... I want to show you what they decided to do when God was with them. The presence of God was there with them. And number one, when you decide that you're going to step out in faith, you always have to know this, that you step out with God's presence. God is always there. And whenever you decide to step out, you need to understand that there is one person that you're to keep your eyes on, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, we have lots of great pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have different ways of noticing, and Israel would know, that God's presence was with them. One of the symbols that showed Israel that God was there was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is very prominent in these next couple of chapters because it'll be mentioned here about 17 times about how the Ark of the Covenant was going before the people of God. So the Ark of the Covenant is a symbol that God's presence is with them. But if we nail this down just a little bit further, we can get even more specific and we can say that the Ark of the Covenant was actually a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have time to go into a complete study of the Ark of the Covenant tonight, but the Ark represents Jesus. And we have a picture, if Brian will show, here we go, the uh, the picture of the Ark of the Covenant. And what this was, it it was a box about uh, 47 inches long, 27 inches high, or 45 inches long, rather, 27 inches long, 27 inches high. And this box was covered in pure gold. It was made out of wood, but it was covered in gold. And if you remember from our study of the tabernacle, that wood represented the humanity of Jesus Christ. The gold that overlaid it represented his deity. And so that was a picture that united in Jesus were were two natures, and that is the nature of man and also the nature of God. So Jesus was both God and man. He's the God-man. Well, in the tabernacle worship, the Ark of the Covenant was the main focal point of worship. Whenever they set up the tabernacle, they put the Ark of the Covenant in there. It was to house the Ark of the Covenant. And God had a very specific place called the Holy of Holies. And that's where they put the Ark of the Covenant. And then God's presence was shown to the people by the pillar of cloud that came and stood over directly the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was a cloud by day and it was a fire by night. So that was to show God's presence is there. 
Most of you are probably already familiar with the Ark of the Covenant because you've seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. As I've told you, that's my favorite movie of all time, even though it's not very accurate. But uh, you, you know what the, something about the Ark of the Covenant. Well, what happened to the Ark of the Covenant is that when the Babylonians came and conquered Israel and they destroyed the temple, the Ark disappeared. Now, Indiana Jones found it for a little while, but we don't know where it is now. Apparently, it's in a warehouse somewhere among thousands of crates. We don't know exactly where. But really, the truth of that whole thing is, is that we don't know exactly what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. There's some people who think that, well, the Ark is, is a buried somewhere beneath the Temple Mount. Other people believe that God took the Ark into heaven, and still others think that, well, the Ark was simply destroyed. I don't know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant, and neither does anybody else. But there is one thing I do know, is we don't need it anymore. We don't need it because the thing that it represented has come. And that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came into the world. He went to the cross. He died there. He was put into the tomb. Three days later, he arose from the grave. And the Bible says he arose for our justification. So we really don't need the symbols anymore because we have the real thing. But if you go back here to the Old Testament at Joshua's time, they had the symbol. They had the Ark of the Covenant, and that showed them they had God's presence. Well, the Ark of the Covenant was to go before them as they marched into Canaan. Now look at verse number four again. It says, yet there shall be a space between you and it, that's between the ark, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Come not near unto it that ye may know the way by which ye must go, for ye have not passed this way heretofore. Well, we remember that when Israel was going through the wilderness, it was the cloud that led them. They followed that cloud, and that's what told them where they were supposed to go. But as they get ready to cross the Jordan River and go into Canaan, the cloud is not going to lead them any longer. Now the Ark of the Covenant will go before them, and the people will follow the Ark of the Covenant. Now here it says that they haven't passed this way before. Well, what that means is, it doesn't mean they've never been to this place before. It means that they had never been led in this way before. Before it's the cloud, now it will be the Ark of the Covenant. And that is a picture again of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the one who leads us. And we also notice here that the Bible says that as they followed the Ark, they were to keep their distance. Actually, they were to stay behind it by at least 3,000 feet. And that was to tell them that they're to honor and reverence Jesus Christ or reverence God. Folks, we ought not to get the idea that Jesus is just another one of us and Jesus is our buddy and that sort of attitude like so many people have today. I mean, we remember what happened to John when he saw Jesus in the Revelation. He, he was a friend of Jesus. He, he accompanied Jesus in his, in his earthly ministry. But when Jesus was resurrected and taken into heaven and given a glorified body, John had a different relationship with him. And so John didn't go up to Jesus when he saw him and throw his arms around him. No, the Bible says that he fell at his feet as dead and he worshiped Christ. And that tells us that we are to reverence Jesus Christ. Reverence his name. Be careful about the way you speak Him. Uh, speak of him. Watch how you use his name because he has a reverend name. We ought to be very careful about this relationship that we have with him. Well, we're going to talk just a few minutes more about the ark tonight because the ark contains some things that were noteworthy. 
Now, originally, Moses was instructed to put three different items into the ark, and each of those three items tells us something about the character of God. So let's look at these. First of all, Moses was told to put manna into the ark, and that was a picture of God's provision. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, Moses placed a golden pot of manna. I know all of us are familiar with the story of manna, and uh, I'm not going to go into it all tonight. But as the people were wandering through the wilderness, they got very hungry, and so they began to complain. And they went to Moses, and they made this complaint. And if Moses hadn't done something about it, he would have been drawn and quartered. So Moses prayed to God that God would help him with this problem of the people being hungry. Now, never mind that it was their fault. They should have been in the promised land in only about three weeks' time. But because of their rebellion, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. But they blamed Moses for it. And so they complained to Moses that they had nothing to eat. So Moses took the matter to God, and God gave them manna to eat every day. All they had to do was just go out and gather it up, and God gave them that manna for 40 years that they were in the wilderness. So God told Moses then to take a pot of this manna and put it into the Ark of the Covenant. And that was to remind them that no matter where they are, no matter how tough things get, God will always provide for them. So God's provision of the manna then is also a picture of Jesus. Now, that ark of the covenant is a picture of Jesus, and the manna placed into the ark also shows us another picture of Jesus. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. So Jesus is our provision, and when Moses put that manna into the golden pot inside the ark of the covenant, That was to tell the people about Jesus, because Jesus is our bread from heaven. The gold represents the deity of Christ, and Jesus is the bread of heaven that came down, and he is the one who provides for us. So as Israel went out, as they began to march, they knew this, God would provide for them. Now, the second thing that we find in the ark is another picture here, and this is the rod that was placed there, and that shows us God's selection. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant, Moses also put Aaron's rod. Now, that's another long story that I don't have time to tell you all the details, but I'm briefly going to tell you about the purpose of putting the rod there. This Ark contained Aaron's rod that budded, or or his staff, we might say, that budded. Now, do you know why that this rod of Aaron blossomed? Why flowers came on it? Well, that was to show God's selection, the true selection for the priesthood. We find this story in Numbers chapter 16 and 17. Some of the Israelites began to murmur against Moses and against Aaron, and they thought that Moses ought to share the leadership of the nation with them. They didn't think that Moses was God's chosen person to lead Israel, and so they said, we think that we ought to have a part in this as well. Well, Moses said, well, if you think that's the case, then we're going to have a little test here, and we're going to see which of us God has chosen. So he told some of the men of Israel to bring a censer, put fire in that censer, and bring it before the Lord. Well, there were 250 men who showed up with their censers, and when they did, the the short part of the story, I'll make a long story short, when those 250 men put fire in their censers before God... God caused the earth to open up and swallow those 250 men. 
Now, we would think, well, that, that's the end of the story there. They've surely convinced now, but in fact, they weren't. Instead, the children of Israel began to murmur even more, and they blamed Moses for those 250 men being killed. So God says, I've had enough of this. So he caused a plague to come upon Israel. And in this plague, there were 14,700 Israelites who died. Many more of them would have died, except Moses had compassion on the people, and he told Aaron to make an atonement for them. Well, after that, God says, we're going to settle this issue once for all. What I want you to do is I want each of the tribes to take a rod, take a staff. In other words, we might call it just an old dead stick that's cut off of a tree. I want you to take that dead stick and I want you to write your names on it. So each of the 12 tribes took one of these sticks and they wrote their names on them. And then Moses took them into the tabernacle. And he said, tomorrow we're going to come back and we're going to see which one of these that God has selected. Well, it so happens when they went into the tabernacle that they came out or went in to check it and it was Aaron's rod that blossomed. Not only did it blossom, it also had almonds growing on it. So Moses brought that out and he showed it to the rest of the people and he said, this is the one that God has selected. It was Aaron's rod that budded. So that was a picture of God's selection. And Jesus Christ is the one whom God has selected. And that blossoming rod shows us that Jesus Christ is the one that God has chosen to redeem man. There's nobody else that could do it. This is the one that God chose. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, God calls Jesus mine elect. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture... Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. And so the rod shows us that Jesus is the one that God has chosen to bear our sins. And so God picked out his very own son for this. Well, there are two notable things about that rod. First, I said it blossomed, and then it also bore fruit. Now, remember, this is just an old dead twig. This has been cut off from a tree. There's no life in it. But what God did, he caused that dead twig to blossom. And what that shows us is that God is able to bring the dead back to life. And isn't that exactly what he did with Jesus? When Jesus was crucified, he came back to life. He was dead in the grave for three days, and God brought him back to life. And then the Bible tells us that now Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. But not only did it blossom... The, the rod also bore fruit. There were almonds that came upon the staff. Well, that shows us that there will be fruits because of Christ's resurrection. Got any idea who the fruit is or what the fruit is? You should. The fruit is us. The fruit is us. Because Jesus lives, we will also live. If you have your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you believe in that resurrection, the Bible says that you will also live And not only will you live, but you'll live with him eternally. Paul wrote about that in the great resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. So there is a day that's coming when these mortal bodies shall put on immortality. This corrupt body will put on incorruption And then we'll be restored to the state that we were before Adam fell. Now, in the fall of Adam, 
all men died and death reigned upon all men. But the scripture tells us that Christ is the second Adam and in him all men can be made alive. And the way that happens, of course, is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. So he rules and he reigns forever. There's nobody, nobody who could have done that but Jesus. And so when the ark went before Israel, in that ark is Aaron's rud that budded. And, and the people looked at that and they knew that the presence of God was there and that God said, my people shall also live. As I live, they will also live. But then we have still another picture in the ark. And this third picture is a picture of God's perfection. And that's found in the law that was put into the ark. Moses, if you remember the story, broke the first tables of the law that God gave him on Mount Sinai. Moses came down from the mount bearing the, the uh, tablets that God had given where he'd written the law. And Moses saw all the people down there in the valley worshiping this golden calf. And Moses became angry and he threw the stones and he broke those stones. Well, God had to write a second set of commandments. Same commandments, but there's a second set of them. And he wrote those with his own finger. And God said, I want you to put that into the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what that shows us is that Jesus Christ kept God's law perfectly. Now, remember, the Ark of the Covenant is a symbol of Jesus. And inside the Ark is put the tablets of the law. So just as the Ark kept the law of God, so Jesus Christ kept the law of God perfectly. Now, that was absolutely necessary because God required a perfect sacrifice. There can be no sin in his sacrifice. So Jesus had to come and live a perfect life and keep all of God's law perfectly. But then that law also represents God's judgment. Moses broke the tablets of the law the first time. And, of course, Israel broke God's law many different times. And so this, this, these tablets of the law were put inside of the Ark of the Covenant to show us that our judgment has been taken by Jesus Christ. Because he went to the cross and died for us, we don't have to suffer the judgment of God in hell. And so we have that representation. Uh, the law is kept in the Ark of the Covenant to show us that judgment is over. Every believer who trusts Christ is safe and secure from God's wrath. But there's still one other thing that I haven't told you about. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was a lid. Now, there are three articles that are in the Ark of the Covenant. The golden pot of manna that shows God's provision. You have Aaron's rod that budded, budded or Aaron's rod rather that budded, and that shows God's selection. The tablets of the law are there. That shows God's perfection. And all of those things were covered up by a lid. And you know what that lid is called? It's called the mercy seat. And do you know what a mercy seat is or what the mercy seat was for? Well, here's the purpose of it. The mercy seat is the place where I meet God. The mercy seat is the place where I meet God. I want you to listen to God's words about the mercy seat. In Exodus 25, verses 21 and 22, And thou shalt put the mercy seat above, upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there will I meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Now, Brian, if you'd show us a picture of the lid of the mercy seat, you see the cherubim that are on top of it with their wings outstretched. And the priest would come and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on that mercy seat. Now, remember, in the ark, 
This mercy seat is on top of it. It's covering up the manna, the rod, and the law, and it keeps all those things from view. But most importantly, what it does is it keeps the law, laws of judgment of God from view. Now, this is the place where God communed with his people. They had access to God because of the blood that was sprinkled there. And so when the Aaron came in and he sprinkled that blood upon the mercy seat, that was a picture that Jesus' blood was shed for us, and he has sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat in heaven. And because of that, we are redeemed from our sins. The scriptures teach us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible tells us the only way that we'll ever have access to God is if we come through Jesus Christ. And so that makes the typology here of the mercy seat very apparent to us. Now, God said that he would commune with Israel from the mercy seat. And so that means that the mercy seat must represent Christ. In the New Testament, that's very plainly set forth. In Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. I'll have it on the screen for you here, but you might want to look this one up because there's a word here you need to underline. In Romans uh, chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, it says, "...being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood." to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Now, if you look at verse number 25, the word there, propitiation, in the New Testament, is the very same word that's translated as mercy seat in the Old Testament. Propitiation means to appease or satisfy God. And that's exactly what Christ is. He is God's satisfaction for sin. And so God has set Jesus up to be the propitiation or to be the mercy seat, the one who covers our sin. Well, people, you know, have have devised multitudes of ways that they think that you can be saved. But there's only one way that you'll ever see God, and that is you have to come through Jesus Christ. If you don't stop at the mercy seat, then there's no mercy for you. The Bible teaches that your sins are still upon you unless you come through Jesus Christ. And that's what this mercy seat is all about there. John wrote in John 3, verse 36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So Jesus is pictured in that ark. And folks, if you are a blood-bought, born-again believer in Jesus Christ, when you step out in faith you can rest assured that God's presence will always be with you. Jesus is there to lead you. So let's go on a little bit further now. We can step out because of God's presence, but there's also something that's required for faith to be operable. When you step out, number two, you have to step out in God's purity. God never told us that before we could come to him that it's necessary for us to clean ourselves up. Many people think that. They think that, well, the only thing that I have to do to be acceptable to God is I'll just clean myself up a little bit on the outside, I'll make myself presentable, and then God will accept me. Well, you can't do that. You can't wash yourself. You can't clean yourself. Only God can do that for you. Now, if God required, though, for everybody to be clean before they came, he certainly never would have saved Rahab, would he? And I know that he wouldn't have saved me and he wouldn't have saved you because we don't have the ability to clean ourselves up. So God is responsible for that. He's the one that washes our sins away and brings us before him in purity. 
But here's the problem. After you get saved, you still have sin in your life. There's still many different sins that we commit. And before you can ever do anything for God, you have to come to Him in purity. The thing is that God doesn't use dirty vessels. Now, we notice what Joshua told the people that they needed to do before they started following the ark. Look at verse number 5. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Well, what does Joshua mean? Sanctify yourselves. I don't have time to read this right now, but write this scripture down if you would, and you might want to read it later. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 9 through 15, Uh, You you can read the story about here about this kind of sanctification. You see, whenever God gave an order for sanctification, one of the things that the people did was to take a bath and wash their clothes. Now, you have to understand this culture just a little bit. Taking a bath and washing your clothes was not something that they regularly did. Most of us wouldn't fare too well probably living among the Israelites. We like to take a bath every day. We like to have clean clothes on every day. So that's what we do at our house. We take a shower. We take a bath every day. The washing machine seems to never shut off. But among the Israelites and among the people in the Middle East, when it came time to take a bath, that was a big day. I mean, that was a notable time. And getting cleaned up and putting on clean clothes was a day that they remembered. Well, one of the things that it symbolized was when you took a bath and you put on clean clothes, it was a symbol of a new beginning. We saw the same thing when we were studying the book, as we're studying the book of Ephesians and those different pictures that we have when Paul contrasts things. We talked about in, out with the old and in with the new. And we spoke about uh, things like darkness and light and the difference between being wise and unwise. These are all pictures of exactly the same thing. It's a new beginning. Well, here's what we learn from this. And that is, we're, if we're not purified from the daily sins that we commit, then God won't use us. When we look like the world and when we act like the world, we grieve the Holy Spirit and God won't use, it, use us. Now, here's how the New Testament describes this. It describes sanctification. It's pictured in the New Testament. And here's what we have to do according to the New Testament. Number one, we have to be spotless in character. And Paul wrote to Timothy about this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. And he said, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared for every good work. Now what Paul is doing here, he's comparing a Christian to the glasses and the eating utensils that would be used in a rich man's house. Now I think all of us, before we sit down to eat, we want to make sure that the glasses and the forks and the knives and the spoons, we want to make sure that all of that is clean before we eat off of it. I remember when I was, when I was young, my dad uh, pastored a church, as you know, in the hills of Kentucky, and often we were invited to go out to members' houses, church members' houses, to eat. And some of the places that we had to go to eat were pretty strange places. I remember going to one family's house, and, and uh, they were back in the woods, sort of, and and uh, they, they kept the doors of the house open all the time. 
And so there were chickens that were coming in and out of the house. There were rodents and there were guineas that came in and out of the house. And so when you sat down to eat there, you weren't sure who you were going to share a meal with. Well, I can remember looking at the, at the glasses and the forks and the spoons, and I made sure what I was going to eat off before I ate. And I didn't really like too much going to that house. Even today, I mean, I I don't like somebody drinking out of my glass, and my wife can attest to that. That's one of my pet peeves, for somebody to pick up my glass and start drinking out of it. I don't like that. I'm not going to use a used fork, and you probably won't either. And so this is the picture that Paul's trying to present here, is that God does not use dirty vessels. And so when you decide that you're going to try to do God's work, and you still have that, that dirt upon you, that sin on you, then God is repulsed by that. And so he tells you that before you're going to be used, you have to clean yourself up. You have to be sanctified for it. So whenever there's sin in your life, you have to get that sin out. You have to be purged from it. And that's what it means to be sanctified in this way. James said, pure religion and undefiled before God is to keep yourself unspotted. Then the second thing that we have to do in God's purity is that we must be separate in conduct. One thing we understand very clearly about these Canaanites that Israel was going in to conquer, they did not serve the same God as the Israelites served. They didn't practice the same things that the Canaanites practiced. Now, in the Canaanite religion, we know that there was things like human sacrifice, there was sodomy, prostitution, all kinds of immoral acts that were done in the name of religion. And so Israel didn't serve wicked gods like the Canaanites did. And so God said, what you need to do is to stay away from those people. Don't you marry them? Don't you let them be your friends? Don't you allow them to come into the congregation of the people? And he even went further than that. We'll see it when Israel gets to Jericho. But God says, I want you to kill all of those Canaanites. Well, of course, God doesn't tell us to kill everybody who's our enemies today. We're not supposed to do that, even though many times there are people in church that I like to get my hands around their neck just one time. But we're not to kill people and hurt people that don't agree with us. But the same principle stays true, is that we're to stay away from people who are not followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that new principle, New Testament principle is told to us in 2 Corinthians. And I think all of you know this, and you really can't miss it, because Paul writes it in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 14. He says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part does he that believe with, hath he that believeth with an infidel, and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. I don't think I have to comment too much on that. That's pretty clear. You really can't miss this, that God demands that we as his people be a separated people. And whenever we defy God on this and we decide that we're going to go out without the purity and without the sanctification that God requires, we're not going to win our spiritual battles. So spiritual defeat looms whenever we go out not being a holy people. So Joshua says to the children of Israel, we're going to follow the ark, boys. 
But before we do, we've got to get ourselves cleaned up. Now, finally, here's what happened when they decided they were going to step out and do this exactly, step out in faith exactly the way that God says. When they were purified, then the next thing that they could do was they could step out to God's power. Now, let me finish this very quickly. Look at verse number 13. And it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon an heap. And it came to pass when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan and the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as they that bear the Ark were coming to Jordan and the feet of the priests that bear the Ark were dipped in the brim of the water for Jordan overfloweth all his banks at the time of harvest that the waters which came down from above above stood and rose up upon a heap very far from the city Adam that is beside Zaratan. And those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off. Now that simply means that the river stopped flowing and all the tributaries that flowed into the Jordan, they also stopped flowing. Verse 17, And the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan. And all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. Now, here's the last statement I want to make on your listening sheet tonight. Obstacles fall under obedient feet. Obstacles fall under obedient feet. A.W. Tozer wrote, As the priest stepped into the waters, the river piled up in a heap. They would have stood there all day waiting if they had not stepped out by faith and put their feet into the Jordan. God waited on them 39 years in their unbelief before they were willing to cross over with him. How many times do we come to new experiences with God and he patiently waits for us to step out by faith and waits and waits and waits. He waits for us to get our feet wet. We have no way of knowing how God will provide or deliver us. And when we step out by faith, he does it. So if you stay right where you are, and you decide that you're not going to approach what you need to do as God commands in faith and obedience, if you decide you're not going to do that, then you aren't going to cross Jordan. You're you're doomed to stay exactly right where you are. You'll be in spiritual defeat. You'll be over-anxious all the time. You'll be under-satisfied all of the time because the Bible says without faith it is impossible to please God. Now, I think there may be some of you that now you're standing on the borderline of your Christian life and you've just decided, I'm not going to step out and get my feet wet. Before you do, you say, God, remove all the troubles. Make everything easy for me. Make the path straight. Make make it easy so I can go. And God's not going to do that. And you know why? Because when Israel came to the Jordan, there wasn't a bridge over Jordan. There was no bridge over troubled waters because God is not a bridge over troubled waters. God is the way through troubled waters. And if you're going to conquer, if you're going to go out, you have to step out in faith. And when you do, God will lead you through. So here's what we have. We have the children of Israel following the Ark of the Covenant. That symbolizes Jesus Christ. And we today, as believers in him, we have the real thing and we step out in faith and we follow Jesus Christ, then we have the victory in our Christian lives. Remember that old TV show called The Jeffersons? Not Larry Jefferson, but The Jeffersons. 
And they had this song that they sing, moving on up to the east side to a deluxe apartment in the sky. Well, that's what Israel was doing, only they weren't moving to the east side. They were moving to the best side. And that's a question for you tonight. Are you moving to the best side? Well, I promise you, if you're following Jesus Christ, if you're obedient to him, absolutely without question, you are moving up to the best side. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the lessons that we learn from Joshua chapter 3. Lord, what a great picture the Ark of the Covenant is and the great uh, things that were put into that Ark that show us the different aspects of what you've done for us. Lord, we just ask you that you'd speak to our hearts tonight. May we, may we take this message to heart and to understand that we do have to step out by faith. And when we do, you're always there to lead us through. First, we have to make that step. And until we do, we'll never be victorious in our Christian lives. Speak to our hearts tonight in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.